Take your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 15. Acts 15, we're in our series called Culture Shock, and it's on the acceptance of the Gentiles in the early church. And God indeed did a supernatural work in melding two groups of people together, the Jew and the Gentile, into one cohesive unit. Now, it was naturally impossible but supernaturally becoming a reality here in the first century. And if we take a bird's eye view of the events at this convening in Jerusalem, we realize that a couple of things came together, kind of percolate uh, to the surface at this momentous event. We'll talk about that in a second. But first, I, I want us to realize that the, the church today needs a fresh work of God in this area. Could you agree with me in terms, of, uh, in terms of unity? I mean, we are seeing in our country today a fracturing along political lines, and it's fracturing families as well. It's unlike any other time that I can remember taking place. And what side you're on and who's to blame is not the point, but how can a church strive to uphold a biblical unity in the face of disunity among the citizenry. It's a real deal, right? How can a church have unity when there's racial divide that never seems to get past the point of people pointing fingers? How can we get past that? I mean, is it, is it really just Pollyanna kind of thing? to think that unity could be a reality in a church? How can a church have unity if an older generation feels forgotten and an older or a younger generation feels like the older people just don't get it? We have to first understand that unity is not uniformity, right? It's not gathering people from one political stream, one race, one generation and saying, look, here's unity. We all agree. I believe unity is best experienced when we have a varying assortment of people working together for a common mission bound together by the Holy Spirit. Now, let me just say this. We talk a lot about this lately, and, and, and I get passionate about this. But in the background, what I want you to know is how proud I am of Christ Community Church and how you have welcomed unity. We have worked hard to make this a reality here. Uh, We've worked hard at, at loving one another. We've worked hard at not being just a good old boys club where women are relegated to subservient roles. We are not what we were 15 years ago. And it's because you have welcomed change. There's unity amongst elders, staff, congregation, and it indeed is a precious thing, and it hasn't always been that way. Obviously, there's still work to be done. There's still a a greater unity to be experienced. How do we get there? How did the church in Acts get there? Well, there's a couple things that are apparent, and I don't mean to say that this is at all exhaustive, but a couple of things are, are very apparent to me. They're obvious. If you take a bird's eye view, you see this, that the church had a biblical theology of unity. 
We have to have a biblical theology of unity. Unity is not our willingness to compromise truth at the altar of relating to the culture or hoping that we'll be accepted. See, they really do like us. That's not what we're after. The, the church in the first century looked at the Old Testament saints and the Old Testament scripture. They saw promises from God that all nations would be able to call God by his name, that there would be a community of people, that God was going to do a wonderful work like that. It's not about just, you know, a conglomeration of people who meet in a church building. That's not, that's not unity. Or who discount the scripture and the gospel in the name of unity. And I, I commend you for working towards that. But not every church experiences that. But we have, to, we have to have a solid biblical theology. So it doesn't mean compromising biblical principles, but it does mean giving up things that are of lesser importance sometimes. Second thing is not only did the church have a biblical theology, but they possessed a first-person testimony of God's activity among them. There's something about the, the oral testimony, the oral history, as we share with one another what God has done in each of our lives. It's, it's like a, a, a fine-tuned you know, fork that you hit, and it, it, it rings true for us that Christ is indeed what melds us together. The gospel is indeed what melds us together. We celebrate that with one another. As Paul and Barnabas traveled through on their first missionary journey, they shared about what they saw God do. And people were saying, amen. You know, we want more of that. When Peter shared about Cornelius and his family coming to Christ, they, they could all be encouraged by that. They were praising God at that. When they saw congregations serving and giving, they could see with their own eyes the effect that the gospel was having on people, first-person testimony as people were sharing their stories with one another. It's not forced. It's not fake, all right? It's not some sales pitch by some sales manager. And we don't, we're not asking people to be parrots repeating, you know, what is being said. No, it's, it's a recounting of the events in our lives to the gospel. It's, it's a devotion to the gospel. It's living relationships with Christ that make a difference. So the, there are these two components. It's a, it's a theology of unity, a biblical theology, and a testimony of God's activity among us. And it, it rings true in our hearts. It rings true from the scripture. And we say, wow, that's that's where we want to be. That's the lane that we want to continue in. Let's all stand as we read our passage. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabas and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Greetings. Since we've heard that some 
persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions. It has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. Men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourself from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. Then it seemed good to the apostles and elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas leading men among the brothers. So we remember that this story initially started in Antioch who sent people to Jerusalem to kind of deal with this council and then the council sent some men back to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They were discussing whether circumcision was a necessary component in order to be a Christian. This is what some of the the Jews were saying that you had to do some of this Judaistic rituals in order to be a Christian. So the council met, and after deciding that circumcision was not necessary, some of the leaders then went to Antioch to deliver the news. Judas, Silas, Paul, Barnabas. And these four delivered a letter that had on it the decision that the Jerusalem council made. With the following letter, the brothers, both the apostles and elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. Verse 23 has the introduction to the letter. And notice what it calls the Gentile believers in Antioch. Let's not just gloss over this. They call them brothers. They are mentioned right alongside elders, apostles, brothers. There is something to be said about the language we use for those who do not naturally fit with the majority. I want you to think about that for a second. I can't possibly give enough illustrations about how this applies they are called brothers because they are, de- are identified chiefly by their common faith in Christ. I mean, there is a fellowship that runs deeper and lasts longer with Christ at the center of our relationships, right? Janet and I visited a church a few weeks ago that was far different than our experience. Their race was different. Their worship was different. Uh, They had somebody slain in the spirit that is not usually a part of our experience here at Christ Community Church. However, I know the pastor and dearly love him. Janet and I shared a common faith 
in the gospel with the congregation. In a shamed way, I can say that 20 years ago, my experience there would have been one upon leaving that place, I would have been critical. But several weeks ago, we realized that we share a common foundation. And instead of listing the differences, Janet and I left with joy. We were encouraged by this lovely congregation. Now, I suppose James, in helping to write this letter that was sent to Antioch, I suppose he could have very easily pointed out all the differences between Jews and Gentiles. In fact, that letter would have been far longer if he wanted to point out all of the differences, because there were many. Instead, he writes a letter that expresses unity, and he writes a letter that was received with great joy and encouragement. Verse 24 gives immediacy to this letter being sent because we read, since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions. Apparently, some of these Jewish believers were going about acting as if the apostles and elders were also in favor of circumcision in order to become a Christian. And that's how these Jews were trying to persuade others. But the letter from the church made it clear that that was not so. They did not have the leader's backing. In fact, what the Judaizers had to say was disturbing to many within the church. It created doubts about, well, then am I really a Christian? Or am I doing the things that a Christian should do if I'm not involving myself in all of these Jewish practices? Am I doing it right? And that's what happens when you focus on the differences. See, we we as a church are making a choice not to make a big deal about the things that have divided the church in the past. Secondary issues. Instead, we choose to focus on the gospel. And we think that that's, that's kind of a sweet spot that we can stay within. It has seemed good to us. We found our sweet spot. Having come to one accord to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So verse 25 indicates apparently there was a consensus. It seemed good to them, to us. So they send Barnabas and Paul, who are witnesses to what God had done amongst the Gentiles on their first missionary journey, And these two men were esteemed. They they carried some weight. And notice it says, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Risk their lives. Mm, mm, mm. You talk about a reputation. You talk about a legacy. They risk their lives. For the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, a legacy is formed when our passion dictates our, our time, our, our money, our focus. For Paul and Barnabas, there could be no doubt that their passion was for Jesus Christ. If that meant death, that was fine. 
If following Christ meant ridicule or loss of job or, or stoning, they were willing to oblige. As Peter would write, when he was reviled, speaking of Christ, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Hmm. You see, I think it's almost easier to know when I'm not entrusting myself to God as opposed to know when I'm actively entrusting myself to God. Because I, I think when there's worry and there's fear, I know I'm not entrusting myself to God, right? So are, are we living with this constant fear? Are, are we obsessing about what can happen in the future? Are our thoughts fraught with, with worry? Now, let's not paint a picture that Paul and Barnabas were immune to this. They weren't. They were human just like you and me. But somehow they were able to figure out that there's something more sure than health. There's something more sure than money. There's something more sure than an earthly reputation. See, these are things we earthlings typically fret over, right? I was talking to another pastor this week. We were commiserating about, you know, what it's like being a pastor and the things that, that belie being Christ-centered in our ministry like worry and fear. And no one is immune to that, including pastors, including me. And we were saying, you know, the issue is not understanding all the intricacies of worry and fear. And there's certainly nothing wrong with understanding, you know, some of the primary motivations and all that. But our focus is to be the, the sovereignty and goodness of God. Not the, you know, the color and weight of my worry and fear. I don't know about you, but I can obsess about those things. Worry about the specifics of how it's all going to turn out instead of choosing to camp on the sovereignty and goodness of God. If we're going to obsess over anything, let us obsess over how Christ can fill our minds and hearts. If you then be raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. That doesn't mean you can't function in earthly business. It doesn't mean that, you know, every word out of your mouth has to be scripture. I mean, you have to buy insurance, get groceries, and do regular things that people have to do, right? Can't get all sanctimonious about this. But what we can do is realize that in everything I do... I can do it cognizant of Christ in me. Can do it cognizant of me in Christ. And I can, I can live out of a confidence that he's here with me no matter what befalls us. Are you immersing yourself in the knowledge of how God loves you? Now, you know, Nick sang this song earlier. And I think of Job losing his family losing his job, everything he had. And he says, blessed be the Lord. In famine, in sickness, in whatever befalls me, I'm going to immerse myself that God loves me. This is what First John says, there's no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear, for fear is to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. 
Now, if, if you're like me and you read this, it's like, oh, geez, I have to read that because there are things I fear, right? I mean, who, who here hasn't experienced fear? And so it might, it might bring shame initially, but just, just hold on a second, okay? I get that, but it, it's kind of like, you know, you're, you're on the schoolyard and your big brother's with you and you got some guy that's your size that's picking on you and then your big brother shows up. Nobody's going to mess with you with your big brother there with you, right? So it's not that you don't have the initial fear, but it's you realize, hey, wait a minute. I'm in Christ, Christ in me. He loves me. I will always be unconditionally loved. I will always have the presence of Christ with me. What is there to fear? And get this, he's pursuing you. He loves you unconditionally. He's always inviting relationship. And, and did you ever think that maybe the very thing you're going through is by design so that you can be drawn to him in relationship? And get this, you are not a victim, but in any circumstance, you have complete access to God's power and love. Paul would write, for God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love. And unfortunately, he put that last one in there too, self-control. You know what that means? What it means is none of us can rightly take on a victim mentality as if I can't control my thoughts, as if this is completely unbearable. Now, I know the minute I say that, I could find out tomorrow I have cancer. I could have one of my kids die in an auto wreck. And I have to remember this verse, that I control my thoughts. I control what goes through my head and what I'm going to focus on. And I choose to remind myself that God is still sovereign, that God loves me even if I were to lose a loved one. Right? So self-control happens in the midst of It's not just, you know, I'll choose not to eat the ice cream, but it's I'm going to choose the thoughts. You take every thought captive. Do you know that God is on your side? And that whether in this life or the next, he will execute his vengeance and justice on those who do evil in the world or maybe even who do evil to you? We read in Isaiah, say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. So see, whether in this life or the next, God is going to even the scales. God is going to take care of it. I don't have to worry about vindication. I can leave that in his hands. So all of these things, the fear and worry, you know, we typically respond with the fear and, and the worry. And then, and then, you know, what that promotes, you know, we eat, we binge eat, or we drink, or we, we binge on Netflix. And at, at, at these moments, it's when we need to pause. Now, obviously, we need to eat, right? And Lord knows we need to watch Netflix, Stranger Things, good thing, okay? All right. But we have to choose also, listen, to drink in God's word, to meditate on how this applies to my life so that these things do not rule me. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. 
that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and with sexual immorality. If you keep yourself from these things, you do well. Farewell. Judas and Silas, also known as Silvanus, uh, were to go to Antioch and their testimony was to be given to Jew and Gentile. They didn't send one guy with one letter. They sent a group of people to give testimony to the believers at Antioch. Listen, we can, we can produce the best social media, the best signage known to marketing. We can have printed on our walls our mission statement. Voila. We can cause every person to memorize our values and vision. We can strategize about our branding. Make sure it's consistent and excellent. Nothing wrong with these. We, and those are needed in today's culture. I get that. But there is no replacement for people in relationship with others who speak from their heart how God has transformed their lives. There is no substitute for that. First person testimony. Now, again, branding, social media, necessary components of ministry today in our culture. It is not a replacement of human-to-human love, heart-to-heart community. Judas and Silas were better than any PowerPoint presentation. How were these people going to be convinced that the Gentiles could be ministered to? Because they shared. They saw it happen. And then people were like, all right. The letter restates in verses 28 and 29, and I'm not going to cover this again because we did this in detail last week. These are things, the, the diet stuff, the sexual morality, they were not wanting the Jews to be unnecessarily offended. This was not for the purpose of salvation. It was for the purpose of maintaining unity so that the Gentiles would not unnecessarily offend the Jews within the church or within the culture. But the Jews were to quit requiring circumcision on the part of the Gentiles. So there was a, a message for the Jews and a message for the Gentiles. You want to provide unity? Give up some of your freedoms, obliged by some of these things that the Jews do, and you're going to find a pathway to communication. It's not required for salvation. It was required to experience unity in the church. Unity calls us all to give up something, right? I mean, we all have strong convictions about things. We all have likes and dislikes, but I don't feel the need to have to communicate that every time I meet up with somebody who thinks differently than I do. I'm not wanting to get in a Donnybrook with everybody I meet. I'm not wanting to, you know, communicate my knowledge to everyone. And I certainly don't want to stack things up as being equal to or paramount to the gospel. Because when we do that, we are out of line. Now, obviously, we never compromise biblical principles. Never. And we talked about this last week, you know, in terms of like, you know, politics or stuff. We, we don't have to deny our culture. We don't have to think of 
patriotism in a negative light. We can serve our country with pride. We can involve ourselves in the political system. However, we have to realize that none of us are an island within the body of Christ. We have to be considerate of others and make sure that we take our orders from our king. And his name is Jesus Christ. He's the head of the church. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. So the whole congregation heard this letter being read. And the result is that there was rejoicing and encouragement. It strikes me that when people have agendas and they are legalistic, it fosters division and you're always going to find someone who loses. But when grace and truth abound, there is unity and there is joy. Again, unity is not when everybody has the same opinion. Unity is not everyone agreeing on every detail. Unity in the church is a Holy Spirit-induced passion to have Christ's agenda over ours. It's our willingness to set aside some likes and dislikes, some preferences for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of my brothers and sisters, for the sake of the whole. And when the, when the church got that, there was joy it resonated in their hearts. There was encouragement. They realized it's the same Holy Spirit who gave them the gospel. That's the source of the unity. It's Holy Spirit induced. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they went off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Judas and Silas equipped and encouraged the church. And then they, they passed the baton to Paul and Barnabas. And I love what it says here. You need to underline this. Judas and Silas were sent off in peace. Now, I know that this is a missionary endeavor. They understood their calling. But it strikes me that there are many people who are not sent off from the church. I mean, many people leave, but they're not sent off from the church because they leave as an island, not as a connected part of the church. How cool would it be that everybody who leaves and goes to another congregation feels like they're sent off? But why is it that it feels most of the time like it's a divorce or like it has to be shoved under the carpet? I want to suggest to you it doesn't have to be that way. Perhaps there are things that we as leaders and as congregants can learn about having healthy and good exits. Some are good, some are not so good. I love that Paul and Barnabas stayed to preach the word, to teach the word. That's when unity has a chance. That's when you can develop a, an accurate theology of unity. 
That's when the congregation can grow and mature and unify. Unity cannot be reduced to a mere sentimentality of, you know, just holding hands or, you know, all having the same emotional feeling about some event. It's not being submissive to some charismatic leader. I don't mean that in a theological sense, but somebody who can just lead the masses and everybody falling in submission. That's not unity. There's a, there's a biblical foundation. There's an understanding of mission. There's a, there's a living relationship. And what I love about this is that there was communication going on between the church and the congregants that you could get in a leader's grill and ask questions. And the guy would not be, you know, who are you? I'm an elder. I'm a pastor. That was not taking place there. There was, there was relationship going on. And the unity was, was worked on and, you know, massaged through relationship. I love that. So we have to be encouraged today to share in the word of God, to share our story, to share in relationship, to work the issues out. That is when the premium joy and encouragement are experienced. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to settle for anything less. Good theology, right? Meaningful relationship and, and interaction and all of us participating in, in sharing our story.